Welcome to Just Jiu-Jitsu episode 7. We are 7 deep now. Oh my god, why do you gotta say it like that? <laughs> That's one time I wasn't trying to be dirty. <laughs> and and I guess I just... That's how we started naturally this. Am. <laughs> oh man, I'm, I'm a monster. God damn. Even when I try not to be. Uh, well... I'm Andrew Desimone, a.k.a. The Monster, with Croiler Gracie. Yep, I'm here. <laughs> and as always, off to a strong start. You know, I'm really surprised we haven't heard from any radio shows or maybe TV talk shows about coming on and maybe just hosting our own show because Absolutely. we're yeah. polished. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing different between what we do and what... You see on 60 Minutes right. or right. Ellen, because those are shows that are kind of the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I don't see any paparazzi hanging around us. They must have not found us. Indiana must have something, some sort of anti-paparazzi law or something. I don't know. We need to reach that level of fame. And that's why I've, I've been trying to come up with the gimmicks like the 30-day challenge. and Which is um, not real. It is. And again, we're very close. I, I'll have to check the calendar. We might, when this episode's released, be at that point. So just start requesting time off work (laughs) or at least prepare your manager for that. (laughs) All right. All right. Um, But we could try, you know, like the 30 day challenge. What about um, how do people get famous? Hey, do you have any sex tapes? (laughs) Oh, my God. No. None you're willing to release. I want to plead the fifth on all counts. (sighs) Listen, it worked out so well for Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian. We could be the next Paris and Kim. Who do you want to be? Again, which which again, one are you? Again, none of this is any good. Like this is only making it worse. You show seven deep, and there you go. Like, you're you're a Kim. You are definitely oh a Kim. You, I'm done. I'm done. You're the matriarch of the group. How, um, how far along in this podcast are we? <laughs> we're five deep now. Oh shit. Let's just transition now to more mature things. This is an episode, yeah? Like what? (laughs) (laughs) This is an episode that is one of our BJJ bios, where we choose a figure in history. And as I'm saying this, I feel bad because I'm sorry to tarnish the good name of who we're about to talk about with the filth we just discussed. Right. You should be ashamed. Me? (laughs) You should be ashamed. (laughs) I'm sorry, um, person that we're about to discuss. I don't know why I'm building up the anticipation. Today's episode is about Ricardo de la Riva. How do you, uh, how would you say that in a beautiful Brazilian accent? Ricardo de la Riva. Okay, that sounds better. Yeah. Not, Not as, it's an easier name for us Americans to pronounce. Yeah, I think so. Ricardo de la Riva. Guy who is... Very well known in the jiu-jitsu community, a name that's well known, but at least for me, when I think Ricardo de la Riva, I know about the guard, and I don't know a ton about him in general. So when we first talked about people to discuss and you brought his name up, I was excited because the guard is great. Mm-hmm. I don't know much of the context, though. Yeah. When did you first have your interest peaked in, in so, him? So... Like like I keep mentioning in the show, I'm, I'm pretty much an addict when it comes to jiu-jitsu. I, I research, I do my 
do my research about any topic jujitsu related mostly especially like i like looking at older practitioners that were historically significant like de la Hiva. and and the reason for that is because they were historically significant because they did something that nobody else had done before right or or they at least brought light to something that hadn't been done before and uh the the first time i, I took some really look into it was when um when i started to to talk to family members and and you know delhiva kept coming up and it's funny to me that let me back up it's funny to me that when I, i've met people before that were not aware that de la Hiva was a person is a person he's still alive mm-hmm. and i've i've met plenty of people that think de la Hiva is just the name of that position that's what and i thought for the first maybe six months of jiu-jitsu yeah. like like triangle is just a triangle you know de la Hiva is just a lot of people position. don't know that triangle is after <laughs> oscar triangle yeah, yeah right right yeah you know they didn't know that or like that the dars choke is from as named after joe dars and he's a guy from like new york or something like that you know and like a lot of people just don't realize i think it's just mm-hmm. the name of the position it's just what we call it. like omoplata is just the name for the shoulder lock they don't realize that de la Hiva is actually named after Hikaru de la Hiva. and um so you know to me I, I looked into it you know what what made him so special what made him great why why did he take that approach to guard work because it's so different um, especially at the time back in the eighties was so vastly different than what it was done before. So maybe we should talk about exactly what De La Hiva guard is because a lot, some people listening might not know right. exactly what. So De La Hiva, traditional De La Hiva guard, and I'm going to say traditional because there's also reverse De La Hiva guard now, but traditional De La Hiva guard means you would be on your back. Your opponent would be standing up above you. Maybe they don't have to be standing up. They have at least one knee up you would take one of your hands and control the heel or the pant leg as it's done sometimes nowadays, but traditionally it was the heel. And that same side leg would go behind their hamstring through to the hip, either the inner groin or the far side hip, if you're long enough to do that. Um, and, And then your free hand and your free leg would be auxiliary. So your free hand would somehow tie up the upper body with a sleeve or collar grip and your leg, your auxiliary leg, would be to block their far side knee or to use to create sweeps and different attacks with it. So you, at this point, you've secured the ankle, the collar or the sleeve, right. and then you also have a foot hooked around like the groin or the thigh area. Right. Okay. Right. Um, upper thigh to be particular, but yes. Um, so, you know, that's the Hiva guard. We'll come back to that. I think the, we could break that down later. Yeah. yeah. So the Hiva comes from, uh, uh, I believe it was a Carlson Gracie a guy. I believe that was the case. But he, yep. so Carlson Gracie was, he was a fighter. He became the champion of the family for uh, an amount of time, a period of time, particularly after my grandfather stopped fighting. He was the guy that fought the, the family challenges was Carlson Gracie. And... Carlson Grace was very tough. He was a very, very good fighter. When he stopped fighting, and my uncles, his his nephews, right, and and his nephews, maybe his great, his far side nephews. However, anyways, when my my uncles, when my uncle's cousins, when 
they started fighting. They became the representatives of the family. Carlson Gracie became a coach, a, a professor, right? And Carlson Gracie, um, you know, his his logo is the bulldog, right? Yeah, and probably one of the biggest gyms in right. country, uh, maybe the world. Right, and Carlson Gracie wanted to prove to people that not only could he could fight, he could teach. And he had, for a long time, he had a big school, but he had about two dozen guys that were just tougher than shit. I mean, he created some, like, incredible, like, some some savages in that school. Who were some of his guys? Like, De La Hiva was one of them. I believe, like, Minotaro eventually came out of there, but I don't know that he was he was trained at Carlson's school. I think he was a De La Hiva He was a De La Hiva guy, yeah, yeah. There's there's a number of other guys that were really great um, from that time period. I, I I will recall them as we're talking about it. But mm. but at the time, those guys were just they were just incredible. Okay, like very tough, tough to be tough to fight against. They were just they were they were not only technically good, they were also grinders. You know, like meaning that they they if they couldn't technically beat you, they would just pound you into dust. You know, like they were athletic. They were strong, they were big, they were powerful. Um, Vitor Belfort came out of that same school. Yeah, now that you say that, I remember seeing Vitor Belfort's like first fight in the UFC. Yeah. And I think you uh, you see like Carlson Gracie in his corner. Yes, yeah. In fact, Belfort went by Vitor Gracie at the time because, oh. Bel- because Carlson Gracie took him under his wing so much so. But anyways, these guys, like I said, they were technically powerful. They were physically imposing. They were bigger, stronger, faster than everybody. They were the one of the very first schools to very heavily focus on the physical preparation. They were also the school that trained, regardless of how you were feeling that day. You know, if you had an injury, tough shit, toughen up or get out. You know, and they were those guys that were just they were they would they would break people's spirit if they couldn't just technically beat them. And that sounds great. You know, you can you can think of like you know plenty of romanticized examples of that where being tough and powerful is good, unless you're somebody that's small mm-hmm. <laughs> and in that school because then all you are is a fucking punching bag for everybody else. And De La Hiva is a small guy, right? I, I think he's taller. I think he's maybe five ten, five eleven, um, and but he's he's a skinny very guy, skinny. very skinny, yeah, super hyper flexible, but very very skinny guy, and. De La Hiva, you know, he was like the, he was the, the Andrew of the school. He was the small guy in the school, except handsome, charming, charismatic, dirty minded, (laughs) unintentionally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he didn't, he doesn't fit the mold of what you think. So, so he had two options, right? In his shoes. And I have never personally talked to him about this, but you know, in, you know, thinking, if I was in his situation, you know, I'm in my late teens and I, well, I want to train jiu-jitsu because it's cool. I want to be tough. I want to protect myself. I go into this Carlson Gracie school because this guy is supposed to be really, really good. And I walk in, all these guys are just gigantic behemoths, right? They're all built and they're all, you know, like they look tough. They look mean. They look like they could do all the things that I wish I could do. And then you come to class and you get the shit beat out of you all the time, right? And you have two options at that point. You say, fuck it, I, I'm not built for this. 
I will either leave or find a different school or you adopt the mentality of, you know, fuck them. I will be the guy that breaks their spirit. I will remain. I will fight. I will beat them. Right. But having to find a completely different way to oh, do that. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And if you look at his guys, uh, village Ishmael, um, came from that school too. But anyways, moving on, you know, those guys were generally speaking, Carlson Gracie guys, um, specifically at that time, they were top players. They were, they were great pressure passers. They were great, um, athletic, like they would add athletics to their path to their pressure passing to where they would crush people. They would get to side mount. They would, you know, cross face and wait and, and, and just make people feel miserable and then look for a submission. If the opponent exposed something, they would take it in the guard. Their guard game at that time was simply, how do I get it to the top? You know, I'm going to sweep so I can grind them and can crush them. And again, and if you're athletic enough and you're big enough and you're strong enough and you're good enough and you can make that happen, wonderful. Until you are... So you're not that guy yeah. and you cannot play that game. Which means that everybody is grinding and crushing and beating the shit out of you all the time. So let's go back a little bit about why the Delhi Guard was created, right? So remember, at that time period, 70s, 80s, was when Holes uh, added the idea of open guard. He said, we're going to move away from closed guard to open guard. But that was still a very new concept back then, right? Why is this important? Because it meant that since the open guard had not become the primary form of jujitsu guard tactics, most people were still playing closed guard. And at the time, it was most effective to open a closed guard by standing up. Creating, okay. creating distance, right? Whether it was one leg up or both, it did not matter, but we were creating some height, some distance between us and them to take away some of their power. Once the legs are open, we cannot allow ourselves to stay up because then they can try to use, the at the time, the fancy open guard stuff, and they would come back down and it would crush you down and pressure pass. So De La Hiva decided that there was a, a weakness in that thought, right? And I don't know if it was a conscious thought, if it was just an accidental thing that when they were standing up between when they started to stand up and before they came back down, there was an opportunity to attack them. So before that, what were people doing in that position? The guys who would have closed guard and their opponent stands up. What, what, what were like the some of them would rudimentary, keep, some of them would keep the closed guard. They would get up with a guy. Okay. You know, they would ab, ab, ab themselves up and f f fight with a guard with a closed guard around their waist while the guy's standing up. You know, was were, were there many people who would purposely let go and then try to work from the open guard, or was that considered like yeah. just defeat when you would? No, just... I mean sometimes, like I said, the, the open guard is a new stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And some people were aware of it; they could do it. Others would fake it, right? Some people, like Marcus Tambowski, were able to use his long legs to still be able to do sweeps and submissions, even if they stood up. But Delhiva couldn't, right? So Delhiva decided, hey. If I stay on my back, I won't get slammed by these guys because these guys are rough and tough. They, if they get frustrated enough, they might slam me. So if I'm on my back, I'm not getting slammed. If they stand up, what if I can just slow them down? That was really the goal. Like, how can I slow them down so that they're not crushing my thighs and my hips and my chest and everything else? And he, being very flexible, weaved his leg right behind the hamstring to the far hip and controlled the heel. 
And basically the idea was if I can keep their knee from coming forward, they're not crushing me. In fact, if I keep that going, they can't drop their upper body on me and crush me because their knee is facing the other way. So that's, that is a crucial part of that is yes. turning that knee. Correct. Okay. So, uh, he played with it, right? Again, I don't think it was a, cons- a conscious decision of saying, I'm going to develop this today. And it just came to him. I think it was unintentional trial and error just to survive. Mm-hmm. Right. And eventually he found a little, something that was a little bit successful. So he, that became his go-to thing. And then over a period of time, don't know how long, um, that became more and more and more effective to the point where people start calling it a guard. And then back in the, back in the eighties, people called it the, the Punjing, Punjing guard, um, which is, um, Punjing is kind of like flan or, uh, like jello. Okay. Um, and the reason why people called it that is because the guy on top, you know, again, you gotta keep in mind that back then it wasn't as developed as it is today. So a lot of his play at early stages was simply to keep the guy from advancing, to keep him off balance enough. And it was like jello when it's setting and mm-hmm. it just shakes, the guy on top would be just kind of shaking all over it, not to <laughs> so fall. that's where it comes from. That's where the name came from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, it, it went on for, again, I'm not quite sure how long of a span that was. This, I believe that name and that time period was roughly early 80s, early to mid 80s. As he was doing that, was he, how far was he developing that? Was he working in sweeps and submissions from there? I think, well, I don't know, right? I think, I think at the time, I think it's, like I said, I think it's mainly started off as a means to just survive that role. Sure. And if you could make it go somewhere, then great. Eventually he did, right? Eventually he got his sweeps, you know, different submission setups. But it started off as probably just a point of control. Survival. Stands (laughs) up. I know here I can at least survive for a second control. Right, right. This guy will only crush me for three minutes instead of five, Mm. (laughs) you know, whatever. And, and, uh, like I said, he developed over a period of time and he started using it in competition. And like I said, that's where the Pujing name came from because everybody on the outside looking, they didn't understand what was happening. They just saw the guy on top shaking all over the place not to fall, right? And uh, again, over the years, he competed a lot. I think he, his last competition was in like 92 or 93. By that point, it was called the De La Hiva Guard, right? Uh, or the La Hiva Hook, it became the La Hiva Guard because then it was developed enough. And... Um, you know, essentially his guard was efficient form of unbalancing. Um, in, in judo, in Japanese judo, it's called uh, kazushi. Um, I believe that's how you say it. And, uh, and, and unbalancing is a critical form of control, like we talked in a previous episode, because if you can dictate the distance and you can have the better angles, you're essentially creating an off-balance. Mm-hmm. So that off-balance led him to create to have to develop very creative sweeps, very creative submission setups, very creative, like a very, very complex problem to solve. I wonder what people at his gym thought of that, because in a very tough, hard nose style school where we're, we're top guys, we're aggressive. I wonder if they looked down on him for that at first, because they it, it, maybe there's there's probably some frustration because when it was working. Right. Two, it's it's different. That's not it's not stereotypically where you want to be right. in this this world that they're living in. And it's the smallest guy in the room doing it. 
<laughs> add on top of it, yeah. So, you know, you got to keep in mind in a, in a school where, you know, the toughest, the the, the, the strongest, the best are, are you know, the, the lead, right? That's what they're shooting for all the time. I think at first it was very gimmicky and people thought that that's all it was. It was just going to be gimmicky. They just had to figure a way around it. You know, this wasn't a big deal. I'm sure that if you were one of the people that maybe weren't as good at beating that gimmicky thing that he was doing, I'm sure you were shit on by your, by your friends because, you know, you got stuck in his little, little leg thing, you know? And, um, but I think what they didn't realize was he took advantage of an opportunity, right? He found a weakness in their plan and he developed something. He weaponized that weakness into something that was very, very powerful, very, very complex. And I think over the time, very much like they adopted Carlson's way of passing, his pressure passing and stuff, they would they would then start to, you know, adapt De La Hiva's style into their style. Because if they were in the bottom, turns out that shit's really frustrating to pass. So if I'm in the bottom, I might as well do that to somebody else. Right. right. So he did that for a long time. And 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 the thing people don't understand is Dilhiva is incredibly flexible, right? So he doesn't necessarily need himself, his person, didn't necessarily need the perfect angle to get to the Lahiva guard that you and I might, because his leg was so limber that it could weave its way in, even if the angle wasn't perfect, which made the guard, partic- hit that guard, his guard, particularly powerful for him, right? Mm-hmm. But um, It's a guard that lends itself well to people who are long. Yes, flexible. Mm-hmm long and flexible. You don't have to be, but it definitely helps. Helps, yeah. yes. So he did it for a long time. Like I said, he stopped competing in 92 or 93. He's done some matches since then, early 2000s, I think. But he, um, that that guard, right, the Dilhiva guard, when he stopped competing in 93, the things that he could do then are not the same things we see today. There are a plethora of more things um that can be done and achieved from Dilahiva Guard now. And that's because it's been 26 years. What was his, like, toolkit? What were the basic things? Were there, like, like four or five things that he would usually do off that? So, if like I said, it's hard to find old footage of the 80s of him, you know, grappling and stuff. And when you can, it's so blurry, probably. Right, right. I do know that he did the traditional Dilahiva sweep, where you, you block the knee, pull the sleeve, you kind of come up. You know, I do know that he would come up into single legs at times and things, things of the such, but um, I don't actually have a lot of footage of him, right? Mm-hmm. All I've heard is from people, you know, talking about him. So that's one thing. And then over the years, so let me, let me take a quick side tangent here. Uh, Grandmaster Mansoor, who is uh, the head of Kyoto BJJ in Long Island, I believe, New York, he said something. It's one of my favorite quotes about jujitsu. He said, jujitsu was not about creating. He said, jujitsu has always existed. It's about um, seeing it. And, and that is such a simple statement, but it's very complex meaning. An armbar is an armbar, right? It doesn't change. There's no new armbar <coughs> on the planet, right? An armbar is a fulcrum and a lever and, and, and a joint. That's it. There's mm-hmm. nothing, nothing more to it. But how many more armbars... And how many more armbar setups do we see now versus in footage from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, right? Um, look at 
ankle locks and ankle locks and ankle lock that's been there forever but there's so many more setups the applic and, and not only there's more setups right and the reason why there's more setups or or more ways of getting into it or different styles of applying a, an ankle lock or an armbar is because you have more people looking at the same goal but they're looking at a different perspective okay right so that is the reason why there's more setups now we're gonna go back to it's gonna tie it back together the reason why arm bars today ankle locks today chokes today are much more mechanically efficient than they've ever been is because we have more people looking at material that's already been researched right mm-hmm. they they're they're looking of ways to getting into this place that's that well known and they're just looking to make it better the research is further along so De La Hiva did this research, right? He, let's say he started in the eighties up until 93 when he quit competing. I'm sure he's still researched and did a lot of it. I'm not taking anything away from that, but let's say that's like a 13 to 15 year span of actively working on it. It's been 26 years since then, right? 26 years with thousands more people looking at it because Jiu-Jitsu has grown so fast. There's social media, there's YouTube, seminars are a thing now mm-hmm. you know so there's m- many more people have access to the same position to his research to his research notes and right. they can develop it um we no longer have to visit him correct. and have him personally teach it to us correct. for us to learn it right right he's not the only guy that knows this there's other people that know it I'm not saying that they know it as well as he does or they have the same experience as he does because he may know the reasons why he moves a certain way where other people, they just know that they have to move that certain way. They mm-hmm. don't know the reason why, right? They're not well as, as experienced with it. Um, so today, what we see with El Hiva, you know, with guys like Cicero Costa, with the Miao brothers, uh, the Hafa Mendes, the Mendes brothers, right? You look at guys like Keenan Cornelius with the De La Hivas, right? They have so many intricate, advanced setups to the Hiva guard that were not there 26 years ago and and now people are even doing the the reverse de la hiva right where they're weaving the leg through the other way so they're no longer grabbing the heel they're hooking the shin and feeding the leg through the hamstring to the outside right um that's the reverse de la hiva they just took the hook and went the other way with it Hmm. turns out that there's a number of things you can do there too there isn't there's a reason to do that and what's the reason for that it's just a different approach, okay. different way in, different properties to the guard, right? Mm. Every guard has a different property. So if you're getting beaten, maybe just change the guard, make them change their passing too. Okay. Um, the reverse of the Hiva allows people to invert easier and spin underneath easier. So if that's a, a path that you want or an approach you want to take, that is a very good way to go. Which allows them to spin underneath uh, the underneath opponent's opponent. legs. Yeah, and get inverted and okay. do, do things like that. This all happened because of De La Hiva, right? His research and people took that and they ran with it. Um, and again, to me, that's really cool. You know, it's cool to know that one guy had such a huge influence in jiu-jitsu. Right. Did you have a stage growing up where you hit De La Hiva a lot? Did you have like a, uh, when did you first start adapting that into your game? So I will say that um, I knew of the guard and I knew of the stuff. I didn't actually practice it for a long time. It wasn't until um, Chris Howe, who's a black belt in Indy, uh, came up when I was a blue belt. He was a blue belt at the time, too. He came up and he did the Hiva guard, right, to me. And it was incredibly frustrating 
to pass, right? Because I just felt unstable, which is the whole point of the guard. And again, he was just a blue belt at the time. You know, although he was, at the time, he was already a world champion. He, you know, was not as practiced as, let's say, a black belt in Delhiva. And I remember being so frustrated that a blue belt could do that to me. Because you got to command, this is back when I was in my angry, angry period, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like Just your blue period? Yeah, my blue period, yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he I, I kept thinking, man, this is so frustrating that a blue belt can frustrate me this bad with <laughs> this fucking guard you know what i mean like and you'd seen it before but this was just the first time that it was being done used to me applied on me right yeah. yeah and uh you know and, and chris and i are friends and and we we trained together the hour the countless hours together but um that's when i started playing with it was because i wanted to learn how to beat it it's interesting he was doing that to you because he is a uh, typically, I would think he's a wrestler. He's a top wrestling guy. background. Yeah, yeah. So you'd think top guy, very aggressive. Right. He's the last guy that I thought you'd say introduced yeah. you to Daily Heat. <laughs> so at the time, what would happen is if he got on top, I'd get guard back and he couldn't pass my close guard and I couldn't sweep him to get on top. So it'd be kind of a stalemate. So we would at times switch where, like, you know, I would get on top, I would start in his guard and we'd go from there. Well, my approach to passing guard was to stand up, which then led him to his Daily Heat guard. I remember wanting to learn and wanting to develop it, and I, and then I dove deep into researching the Lahiva because I, it wasn't so much that I wanted to learn it; I just wanted to beat it. And I think if you want to beat something, you have to know what makes it work, right? So if you know how what each part does and how it together creates this thing, maybe then I can deconstruct it. I can take it apart and break it early on before it's ever a thing. Mm-hmm. And and that was my that was my dive into the Lahiva guard was just how to stop this goddamn hook. And um, so as you deconstructed it, what uh, were you finding? What, what was the, what were the things you're taking away from? So, it? you know, the Lahiva grabbed the heel. Most people today grab the, the pant leg because it's an easier grip. Turns out that the, the heel, the heel grab is one of the most important components of the Lahiva guard. Right, whoever controls the heel wins the fight. So if somebody tries to do a heave at me and they can pull my heel outside of my knee line, I mean to the outside of my body, okay, they will win that fight. It'll be very tough stopping them from doing anything because as that leg goes <clears throat> outside of your knee, it buckles the knee inwards. Well, yeah, open your heel. Watch, watch your knee move. Mm-hmm. As soon as the heel opens, your knee turns inside. Right. Right. So if I could stop my heel from being rotated out, I could stop my knee from being turned in. I see. And the fight to the Lahiva guard starts there, breaking that down, avoiding that heel from being pulled apart. And, and again, there are very creative ways of making that happen now because it's much, much more developed now than it's ever been. But that's still the fight to have. That's the place to to make your stand. Because even if you can win that heel, right, and the guy finds a way to work around around you controlling the heel, the person applying the heel finds a way to sweep you, even with your heel in the right place, it still gives you a better place to start your defense against something else, okay. right? It would be the same as if I said, hey, the key thing to passing close guard is to not let your opponent hold your sleeves in your collar, right? All of a sudden, can your opponent sweep you? Absolutely, he can sweep you. 
Can your opponent set up submissions without holding your sleeves and your collar? Absolutely. But it's so much harder, <laughs> which makes your life so much easier. Right. Right. So that's the fight to have in the Hiva Guard. But yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's yeah. To me, it's it's fascinating. How do you choose when to when you have someone in your closed guard when they stand up? When do you usually decide I'm going for the De La Hiva as opposed to some other type of open guard? Like a lasso or a spider yeah. or whatever. Well, it depends, right? So when somebody opens your close guard, there are three things that we need to address. Did they open it against your will, meaning you thought that they weren't going to open it and they just beat you? Did they open it because you opened? You thought, hey, my guard isn't going to open anyways. I'm going to be here. I might as well get ahead. Or was it just a situation of luck? You're not quite sure what went wrong. He doesn't even know what he did right. It just happened to open. Sometimes it happens, right? So if it was opened against your will, meaning the opponent is ahead of you, it becomes much tougher to set up a intricate guard like De La Hiva or a lasso, and it becomes much easier to um, settle into a much more basic, not basic, that's a poor word, a much more fundamental position, let's say like half guard or butterfly, because those are easier to achieve in a pinch. But if my opponent starts to stand up, I feel he's going to open anyways, or I feel that I can achieve a better form of attack or a better form of control if I open my guard, I can then set up the, the De La Hiva, right? And for me personally, if somebody starts to stand up in my guard or they raise a leg and I don't feel like I can hold them down... I will go into De La Hiva if I can't control the upper body. If I can control the upper body, I will go lasso or spider or somewhere else. If I cannot do that, like they're too far away from me, if they've broken my grips, they're staying up too far away, then De La Hiva becomes easy because their legs are right there. So it's kind of a, almost like a plan C where plan B being your first trying as a stand up to Plan A would be keep your guard closed. Plan B would be trying to control their upper body as they're standing up, grabbing Correct. a collar, grabbing it. For, for me personally. For, for your style. Yeah, right, right, right. And then as they, if they are surpassing that, you right. then will fall back to De La Hiva. Correct. Okay. Right. Or, or any other style like De La Hiva, you know, okay. like Koala, you know, Shin on Shin, Reverse De La Hiva, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there's nothing wrong with making De La Hiva guard your go-to guard at all either as long as you can achieve the desired position to set it up why not you know and i think um there are plenty of people out there that do this now they go right into the lahiva and that becomes their go-to thing and that's okay there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that so when you think of what de lahiva's overall footprint on jujitsu is what what was his effect what did he have on the art well, I think Dilhiva is another proof, and there's plenty of these, and we'll eventually talk about other people, but Dilhiva is the first, I think we've talked about, oh, the second if we count my grandfather and Carlos and stuff, but I think Dilhiva, like Stambowski, like Gordo, like others of their time, they've shown that an unfavorable position can become a strength if we put the time into it, right? But if we talk about, you know, non-conceptual things right because that's a concept like this is a shitty situation how can i turn it to my advantage but if we talk about like a, like a real tangible evidence it's just the entire idea of controlling your opponent through their legs okay you know why can't that be done right and it turns out that you can 
And that's big because instinctually you wouldn't think that you could control in a fight or in in jujitsu. You don't think you can control someone from such a uneven position where right. someone is standing, right. you're on your back, just hanging onto the ankle. Right. It looks very weak to someone who has no knowledge of what's happening. Right. When we think of dominance, we think of like upper body, right? Like holding somebody down with your arms, pulling something, yanking something, choking something. But really, in grappling, most of your power comes from your legs and hips. It's really not much from your upper body. And this little guy, this master now, right, um, found a way to control the opponent through their strongest means of movement, their legs and hips, and that's fascinating. And that's all jiu is about, just the little guy right. kind of finding a way to use Make it something work. other than strength right. to dominate the opponent. Well, De La Hiva, thank you. We yeah. uh, do you have a did you have a song or a poem that you wrote in honor of him? No, I'm not writing or singing poems. I am not rapping. I don't. Why, why? <laughs> do okay, think? all right. Now you're saying a lot of things you're not going to do. At first, it was you weren't going to rap. Oh I my get god! It. But now you're not going to sing. You're not going to recite any poetry. No, like I, I mean, are you expecting me to like one day you're gonna ask me to do something like that and I should break out into song and I don't know maybe just it wouldn't hurt to catch say me like, off, off, yeah, off surprise Coiler what do you think about De La Hiva <laughs> and you just go like far in the mountains of Brazil and like maybe just come up with a cool folk song no no I, I can't do that I have no skill in that realm I wish if anyone out there knows how to auto-tune well let me know because I would <laughs> gladly go through and pick out words from just every episode that we do and just create your own song and make you say the worst I things. will find you and I will kill you. But, I mean, the find part won't be very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not you. The people that help you. Oh, the people that help Okay. <laughs> You've all been threatened. Hey, I, I will not give up my sources, so do not worry. Um, <laughs> all right, everyone. Well, that's that's our BJJ bio episode. Uh, Ricardo De La Hiva, I know that I'm going to start uh, trying to work on some De La Hiva stuff because we went through, we, we've gone through in class right. and taught it before. Yeah, we're going to get into it again here in a couple months. It's going to cycle back through. Oh, that makes sense. Because we're, we're in X right now. Yeah. De La Hiva next. It, yeah, that is just a natural stepping stone, it seems like. When you teach this to people, do you usually start off just, what's your progression of daily heave guard what are you teaching from the setup to like submissions what what do you in my school or at other places your school like school i'm I'm just curious the flow that you think is natural for that it's just like we did with lasso just like we did with closed we get into properties and and concepts right so Mm -hmm. what what is the purpose why does this work how does it work you know what are the key things we need to have before we move ahead once it's all understood then we can start building techniques you know, these two concepts together leads this technique to happen. So then we're going to do that technique. And then when that fails, it's failing because of this. So then we address it with this thing and we build it that way. Okay. Um, but at first it's just going to be, why are we controlling the heel? Why, where do we put our hook? Is it on the inner thigh or on the hip? You know, where do we want our auxiliary hand and auxiliary leg to be? Things like that. How many weeks do you think the course will be? Pretty, pretty long. Pretty I have long. to look, I have to look at my notes. Yeah. See? We don't just get in-depth on just jiu-jitsu. We get in-depth at Court of the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, Elkhart, Indiana. If you're 
in this area, <laughs> stat by. You like how I just switched over? I did. To, I, to I like that. Yeah, that was good. That was a good. That was a good shout out. I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. Um, also, shout out to Grappling Dads again. Uh, great guys, and we love them so much. Uh, your your face says something different, though. I'm gonna leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> guys, if you like the episodes, let us know. Um, feel free. I I always forget to say this. If you have questions, email them to us. We'd be happy to answer what's the, them. What's the email? Thank you. Mm-hmm. That I should also probably give people. It's just jujitsu podcast at gmail.com. And how can they find this? Our Facebook page and our Instagram page that nothing happens on. It's just a dead page yeah, you, right now. You need to get on that. I know. I'm not good at posting a lot on Instagram. So, Will, you can help me. Oh, my. Me? Yeah. You have memes all the time <laughs> that you're sending me. So, just, you know what? I'll just start posting the stuff you send me. There you go. That That's easier. Maybe you and I can just start taking a lot more selfies. And We're not going to do the grappling dads thing. <laughs> I mean, we could. It would just be better. But True. We could. I'm, what are other things that people do for posting? Uh, we could do like fashion posts where we start wearing. You could. Different... I mean, you're a pretty fashionable oh, guy. Thanks. Yeah. I yeah. can't. I can't do that. We could do we could do fail videos in we the gym. We could do fail videos. That could be good. Yeah, that yeah. would be just. Yeah, we could do some technique videos, maybe. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. All right, guys, we're, we're working on stuff, and that's a good way to just let the podcast fizzle out with <laughs> just mumbles. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>